Dodnet Rocks episode 770 with guest Dominic Beyer. Recorded live Monday, April 23rd, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks, a very special edition. Richard and I are doing the show from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> we have returned to space. Sometimes we're in outer space, but not today. I- I guess of all the Geek Out subjects, this is our favorite one. Well, you know, the very first one that we did on space, yeah. we talked about SpaceX. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's why we're doing this show right yeah. now again, because it's big news. But we also talked about a lot of other uh, companies that are uh, planning to go to space. So we'll still talk about those today. Yeah. And I know some folks are holding out for the Nuke show, and we're going to push it back a little bit further. Don't worry, there's lots of goodness there. Yeah, But uh, it seems like with SpaceX up in space right now, we really got to go back and, and talk a little more about space. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip the Better Know framework, but tell me who's talking to us, Richard. You know, on shows like this, I grab a comment off of a previous geek out. So this is from uh, 762, which was our wind power geek out. And the mm-hmm. comment I've selected is from Richard Hopton, who says, Hi, Carl and Richard. Thanks for continuing to make such a brilliant show, which I've been listening to for several years now. I especially like the recent sec of Geek Out shows, and this one is my favorite so far. That was the Winge Powered Show. Yeah. I think I can safely say listening to your show has changed my life since show 394, and I got to be involved in the .NET community, something I didn't know existed in my local area until that point, and without which I wouldn't have met some really great people or even got my current job. Wow. So feel good, my friend. We, we've helped some folks. That's awesome. Uh, living in windy Oxfordshire village in the UK with a local council planning to erect wind turbines nearby, I think a home turbine would probably be a great idea. Finances permitting, I plan to incorporate solar and wind power generation into my home, especially with a battery backup since the power gets disrupted every so often when trees get blown down onto power cables. Huh. Fair. And you know... Yeah. You know who's actually got a really interesting system running right now that we maybe we can get him on the show? Yuval Lowy. Yeah. Yuval has this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. Not really out in the middle of nowhere. It's not that far from town, but it's uh, southwest of Los Gatos. I've actually had a chance to look at it. It's all solar right now, but he's got the battery system. He's got the conditioning system, and he's really got a setup so that he can start using multiple power sources to keep those batteries charged. Mm. But the house itself runs on battery. Hmm. And everything else charges those batteries. The coolest part about it, he's got a gauge that tells him exactly how many watts his house is currently consuming. And you can watch that gauge flick on a light and see the number change. Wow. It's very instrumented. Well, we'll, we'll get into that, but that's a, that's for a later show. Yeah, let's do that. Richard continues with, uh, you mentioned 48 volts DC throughout the house, which sounds perfect to me. And since most of my devices are modern consumer electronics, bringing an end to transformers, which sometimes feel like they're breeding, fills me with joy. My question is, what can we do as individuals to convert our existing devices to use 48 volts DC? What I mean is running PCs, LCD flat panel TVs, laptops, printers, routers, and all different mobile device chargers off 48 volts DC, yet being able to handle the myriad of different voltages required and all without having to invert to AC and transform back to DC. Hmm. 
keep up the good work and thanks for the 766 shows here so the next 766 dude i'm just trying to make to a thousand give me a break <laughs> richard hopton oxfordshire uk awesome all right first thanks, thing richard. to know uh as far as uh, transforming voltages without having to convert back to ac what you're looking for is a little device that you already own called a switching power supply right Switching power supplies actually use oscillation and conditioning methods to alter DC voltages. The fact that we generally only ever use them in the context of AC voltage isn't actually relevant to the point. You know, you could supply them with DC as well. The problem, of course, is that would still create a wall wart, some kind of transformer. So it'll be interesting to see if we actually get to a point of starting to distribute power in different forms like this. Would it make sense to have a more complex plug where you can actually dial in the voltage you want or even a signaling system? What about a common plug where the device says, hey, I only want 12 volts and the plug switches automatically? Well, that's what we were talking about before in that show, which was the the sort of the network switch equivalent for power. Yeah. I, I want a smart plug. Yeah. I want a, a plug that when you plug into it, it doesn't give you power right away. First, it asks you, well, right. how much power do you want? Uh, okay, I can do that. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's actually the transformative approach, right? That one of those power options would be 120 volts AC. So, you know, if you don't have a smart device, you just plug that in. You know, the whole USB power thing really brought DC power home because if you support USB, you have that one range of voltages and that's it. So you don't ever have to mess with transformers and wall warts. I think it's, you know, that that sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities of, uh, you know, power switching. Sure, it's just a you know five volts is not enough. No, but right. it does automatically just work, right? Yep. There's no you don't have to worry about polarity. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about amperage or voltage or anything like that. You just plug it in, it works. Yeah, and I I think we could see in common appliances getting there in general, where you know right now it's interesting that we've evolved to the point where we have switching power supplies that we don't even think about this stuff. They take any input source, yeah. right? Right. They'll take from 110 AC to 240 AC. 50 hertz or 60 hertz like you go look at a modern power supply it'll take anything and output what it needs so that range can only be expanded at some point that same power supply will be able to take 48 volts dc and just Mm -hmm. handle that all right let's talk about spacex dragon Oh, yeah. And, and in some ways, we're a little early because when we're recording this show, right. which is, you know, uh, May 23rd. So SpaceX launched their Dragon. And funny, I went and checked our last space show, which was back in uh, November of last year of, of 2011. Mm-hmm. We were talking about how SpaceX was going to launch in November to go to the space station. Right. So they are six months late, par for the course when it comes to space. Yep. But they're up there now, and Dragon's on its way to the space station. And we're going to presume, between the day we recorded this and the day we published it... Two days. It docked successfully, right? That nothing, everything went fine. And they've got a really elaborate procedure yeah. for how they make sure that Dragon won't hurt the space station. Yeah. So we're, we're recording this two days after the launch... And, it, and maybe a day, two days before the docking. Yeah, so so we hope that everything went fine. <laughs> sort of, the, you know, we just need to talk about this. That's all. Yeah, we and, it, talk- and we're really, I mean, obviously, I'm terribly excited. Absolutely. You know, Elon Musk really has, is evolving into a real life Tony Stark, isn't he? Yeah. 
you know, billionaire makes this, makes that, you know, the, the model S, the, the sedan, the, the electric sedan for 50 grand has yeah. now been approved. Uh, it's finished his crash testing. Like he, he, he's firing on all cylinders at the moment. It well, seems. you know, what's interesting is that I always thought Richard Branson would be the guy to fall into that role. And if you want to see uh, Virgin Galactic's response to the launch of Dragon, just go to virgingalactic.com slash news. Yeah, it's one word, null. <laughs> they got, got a little little bug in the website. I think there's a bug in the website, but it is kind of funny. And here's another irony. If you go to tinyurl.com slash shuttle irony, that's shuttle irony, you'll see the SpaceX Falcon 9 launching over the space shuttle. Yeah. Now, it, it's kind of funny, but if you read it closely, it's not the real space shuttle. It's a high-fidelity mock-up. But it is kind of funny that, you know, there's the SpaceX Falcon 9 going up and the space shuttle is in the foreground. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you're down there, I'm up there. What happened? <laughs> well, you know, we've talked about the, the shuttle needed retiring. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and at this point, SpaceX is only able to haul cargo. Right. But they are working on a man-rated capsule. Yeah. And that to me is pretty exciting. When NASA can buy seats from an American company mm. to uh, to go to the space station, because right now they're buying them from the Russians at sixty million bucks a seat. Yeah, and that, and you know an entire Falcon Nine flight is less money than that. Well, that's if we could summarize what we talked about in the very first space show. It is that private enterprise can go to space more efficiently than NASA can. Mm-hmm. They can do things cheaper and better. And, and granted, not just because NASA was funded by the government, but because NASA totally overbuilt the space shuttle, way overbuilt it. Right? Well, and, and at the same time, did not, it, it still wasn't as reliable as it needed to be. 133 right. flights with two catastrophic failures. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as much as it overbuilt and underbuilt, it just, you know, never was quite right. And that's that's a damn shame for what was a truly an amazing machine. So tell us about the firsts here that SpaceX has achieved. Well, I mean, one could argue, is this really a first per se? I mean, what's interesting is uh, we like Virgin Galactic and Spaceship One mm -hmm. and, and, and all of these other companies like Lynx Aerospace and so forth, even Armadillo Aerospace. But none of those guys are flying into orbit. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is an actual orbital vehicle that returns. Right. You know, so, you know, SpaceX is running with a very interesting crowd of exactly three other governments. Yeah. The U.S., the Russians and the Chinese mm. in the sense that they've flown a spacecraft into space and brought it safely back. So that's what's fairly astonishing. Now, admittedly, they have not done it without government support. True. A third of... SpaceX's funding comes from NASA, mm -hmm. right, through their COTS program. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's in NASA's interest to support that as well, uh, maybe from a political angle, but also from a, hey, we actually need someone to supply the space station. The problem right. is that it, we're still living in a somewhat artificial world, right? The only destination for Dragon right now is a government-owned spacecraft, right? right, going to the space station. But... That could change, too, because while we've talked about it before, let's bring it up again, Bigelow Aerospace. Mm -hmm. So Bigelow Aerospace, founded by Robert Bigelow back in 1998. This is a guy who made his billions off of uh, creating a hotel change called the Budget Suites of America. Right. 
And he started a company. He did two things that are really interesting. Obviously, he got into aerospace, which is interesting. But he also licensed NASA's TransHab project. So NASA had developed this concept of an inflatable habitation module for the space station. Just this idea that we could make something smaller that would fit into the shuttle that would then expand to provide more room. Right. And it had flexible sides that would inflate to rigid, but be compact when it had to be lifted up. And it used a combination of Kevlar and Mylar and a bunch of other things. They called yeah. it uh, Vectran to make uh, a solid, safe uh, vehicle, but it was actually expandable. So Bigelow licensed this from NASA, mm-hmm. exclusive license to start building these things. Now, they've flown a couple of prototypes called Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and they've just sort of been stuck there. But they just recently, in May of 2012, have signed a deal with SpaceX to start working on marketing uh, the idea of private space station. That's their BA-330. Right. It's an inflatable space station, and uh, it's modular, so they can be connected together to create larger spaces. Right, in the same way that the uh, International Space Station works. Yeah, that's right. And uh, up to six people can occupy one of those space stations. So it is a little bit small, but not bad. Six people walking around. And that's the same as the space, again, the same as International Space Station. So the idea that we could have a private uh, space station with a private uh, launcher going to it is pretty interesting. But, you know, Bigelow doesn't stop there. Bigelow's got designs on taking one of those stations and flying and landing it on the moon. Yeah. Awesome. The, the modular system just works that way. You know, it's entirely possible to start building bases on the moon. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who'd like to thank Microsoft MVPs and RDs for their hard work throughout the developer community. As an influencer in our industry, you deserve great tools and resources to use in your own development. Telerik is proud to offer all Microsoft MVPs and RDs a complimentary license of their Telerik Ultimate Collection plus a five-pack of Team Pulse. This means you get 16 of their developer tools and their agile project management solution. All you need to do is fill out a short online form. Head to Telerik.com slash MVP register to claim your license today. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So are these guys really interested in, in having sort of hotel rooms in space? Is that their goal? Their goal? Well, that's their first business. And I, and I sort of go back and forth on this whole uh, tourism in space. You know, you could sort of equate it back to the early aerospace industry. You know, mm-hmm. coming out of World War I, when you had a whole bunch of cheap aircraft left over, mm-hmm. you had the barnstormers, right? right. For a dollar, they'd take you for a flight. Yeah. Same kind of thing, you know, tourism and flight. But it was ultimately the... American government, specifically the U.S. Post Office, starting to push on airmail and putting out contracts to deliver mail point to point that started maturing aerospace into a real industry. And you're seeing the same thing with ISS, with SpaceX doing deliveries and uh, um, Orbital Sciences is going to do that as well. So there's going to be two different companies competing to deliver stuff to the space station. You can equate that pretty nicely with the airmail drive of the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, absolutely. But so there's, on one side, there is the tourism angle, but it's only going to be for the ultra wealthy, right? That's going to be right now. If you, Carl, if you want to fly into space, you can do it. It's totally possible. Yeah. There is a service out there that will get you a week on the International Space Station. It's pretty cool. It's $80 million. $80 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. 
Uh, and maybe if Bigelow can get up there and uh, SpaceX has reduced the cost of flight and you've got a few more seats, so you're going up six at a time instead of three at a time, like you start doing the math, we can start getting that price down. But we're still talking about very few people. The other side of this, and if you go and take a good look at what Virgin Galactic and, has been doing and Rutan Aerospace as well, with Spaceship Two, they're getting almost as many seats sold to scientists hmm. as they are sold to tourists. Wow. So scientists are looking at the many, many millions in funding they have to get to get any time in zero G on the space station versus what it would cost to rent spaceship two for just a few minutes of zero G, which is all they actually need. Yeah, if you go to spaceship two TWO dot net, you'll see uh videos and stuff about uh spaceship two. Yeah, I, I kinda like that tourism idea because not only not only do, is it more manufacturing in America, which we desperately need, but, you know, that's a way that you can tax the wealthy, sort of, with by giving them something for it, you know? It, it encourages wealthy people to spend big money to do things that only wealthy people can do. And when they spend money, it goes into the economy. Well, I mean, isn't that interesting, this whole bi- the this new billionaires club that are doing these sorts of things yeah you know you, you walk me nicely into uh the planetary resources so planetaryresources.com is a new site recently put up and it is about mining asteroids so this is a coalition of billionaires that have gotten together to look at uh getting serious about mining asteroids doing it for real for gold and other precious metals? Well, that's, you know, now we get into the really interesting argument. Okay, I mean, the reality is if you mine, yeah, you can easily find an asteroid, and their their quote is, we can find and mine an asteroid with 50 billion worth of platinum on it. Wow. Although, recognize, if you introduce that much platinum into the market, it isn't going to be worth 50 billion. Ah, uh, that's true. In a big hurry. However, but, platinum is useful, is used in uh, electric car batteries, isn't it? Used in all sorts of things. It's, yeah. a, it's a great catalyst. So it is, without a doubt, a valuable mineral. But, you know, the crazy thing is this idea of going into space from Earth to return stuff to Earth. Right. It is kind of weird. Yeah. The more sensible thing, if you're really going to talk about a space economy, is being able to mine resources in space for use in space. Yeah. Which is something that's never been done before. We've never manufactured anything in space. Right. Right. We've done lots of assembly. I mean, if you look at the space station, we assembled that in space. Yeah. It's very much like the biggest IKEA box you've ever heard of. Right. 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 Where it's simply, yeah, this piece goes in this piece, screw in here. Here are your tools, that whole plan. And it is truly international. I mean, how, I don't know how many countries have modules in it, but a whole bunch have designed their own modules to the specs and then linked them together. It really is an amazing thing. Right. And, and it's all been a barter deal with the world, right? Japan contributed their module, but they also contribute uh, flights for uh, resources, for more fuel, more uh, water and food and so forth right. with their H2B lifter. And same with uh, uh, Europe and the ATV. You know, they put the Columbus module up, but a- every country made its contribution. Canada's contribution uh, is not a module per se, but it's the, the uh, uh, space arm and this thing called Dexter, the, the dexterous manipulator. Yeah. 
And, you know, their trade for building those things and, and supplying them to the space station in, in exchange, Canada gets a certain amount of time with astronauts on the space station. Uh, I want to get back to the economy for a minute, because I think there's a large faction of people in America who think that it's a waste of money to go to space. But now that the private sector is in business going to space and we have the opportunity for space tourism, as again, I'll say it again, I think it brings money to manufacturing from those who are just sitting on it waiting for a good thing to spend $80 million on. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Because the super rich, they what are they buying? They don't they have everything they need. Now there's a product out there that costs a lot of money that only they can buy. And so that goes into the manufacturing sector and into the American economy rather than just sits, you know, in silver coins or gold coins somewhere in some vault. Well, it could also be turned into Lamborghinis and Ferraris and things like this. I mean, there's another argument here, which is if we were taxing the wealthy, NASA would be doing this stuff. Yeah. Right? right? I don't know that they'd be doing it as well. I mean, there's another side to having a handful of billionaires doing this, especially when you talk about asteroid manipulation, because asteroids make a hell of a weapon. Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> you know, uh, in in the last days of Carl Sagan's life, and Carl Sagan is the guy who made oh, yeah. space popular, yeah. really, yeah, you know, in did. so many ways, you know, the in billions, billions, and billions of ways. But in the, you know, he got really interesting towards the end of his life. If you if yeah. you study him at all, he 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 had always been an atheist, but he felt like he saw God. Well, that's the what end. the whole movie Contact was about. His yeah. uh, his sort of love-hate relationship with religion and spirituality without a doubt. Uh, but the other side of it was that he he suddenly, after all these years of we got to spend more time in space, we got to do these more these things, said we should not mine asteroids. And his big concern was if you develop the technology to mine asteroids, you develop the technology to use asteroids as weapons. Yeah. It's not that hard if you can get out to an asteroid and get onto it to be able to strap an engine to it and target a location on the planet, and it's a hell of a weapon. Hey, Richard, guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. It's time. We're giving away two things today. Oh. First of all, we're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection, which we do every show. Mm-hmm. And today's winner for that is Josh Hanks. Congratulations, Josh. Josh. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Josh. And secondly, we're giving away our monthly Grape City Power Suite. Ah. Now, what's in the Power Suite? So, the Grape City Power Suite currently contains... Active Reports Professional, mm-hmm. Spread for .NET Professional, yep. Active Analysis, which is that product that lets you do uh, BI and OLAP data visualization right in Silverlight, Windows, and Web Apps. It's a self-contained app as a custom control. Yeah, it's like an OLAP analysis tool in a control. In a control, right. Uh, you have Multi-Row, which lets you add custom tabular input and display screens to your Visual Studio application. Nice. Uh, you have Active Chart. So all of those things are in Grape City Power Suite. It's a $2,000 value. And who's our winner this month? And our winner this month for the Grape City Power Suite is Ryan A. Willis. Congratulations, Ryan. Golf clap for you. Golf well done, clap sir. For Ryan. If you don't know what we're talking about, Richard, tell them all about it. <sighs> Go on to the website at rocks.com and on the right-hand side, there's a big link, a big graphic that says, Get Free stuff, because yeah. we want to give you stuff. We get stuff, we give it to you. 
You got to fill in a little bit of information about yourself. And on every show, we do at least one, maybe many drawings. We give away tickets to conferences. We give away all kinds of great software from our sponsors. And once a year in December, call it a Christmas present or whatever you want to call it, $5,000 worth of amazing technology that will be hand-selected by myself and my good friend Carl. So you know it's going to be good. And, you know, I didn't tell you at the beginning of the show, but I'll tell you now. Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. So let's jump back to this whole planetary resources thing, because I think this is yeah. the big new thing. SpaceX has been around for a while. Bigelow has been around for a while. Spaceship 2. But this has been announced since the last time we did a space show. Planetary Resources is a company largely started by a guy named Peter DeMattis. And you, you don't know him per se, but he's the guy who's behind the XPRIZE Foundation. Yeah. So that the $10 million that Burt Rutan won for Spaceship 1. That's that guy. Yeah. And he's a, you know, famous, not as famous, but a multi-billionaire as well. But his investor core is kind of frightening. Eric Schmidt, the number three guy at Google, the former CEO. Uh, uh, Ram Sharam, one of the original investors in Google. Charles Simon is. Mm. You know who that is? Charles who? Charles Simon is, is a guy, one of the early guys at Microsoft, the guy who came up with Hungarian notation. No kidding. That guy. Wow. Uh, Larry Page, current CEO of Google, and Ross Perot Jr. Wow. So it's a little billionaires club going here that yeah. decided, hey, you know, it's time, rather than wait for governments to advance the space agenda, let us take this money we've got and start uh, building a business around mining asteroids. And they say on their site, Planetary Resources, that there are over 1,500 asteroids that are just as easy to get to as the surface of the moon. So uh, lots and lots of possibilities out there. Yeah, and one would say easier because there's nowhere near as much gravity. Even on the moon, you've got one-sixth gravity. Right. So uh, it's an interesting thing to think about this this prospect of mining. But we get back to the idea of if we're going to mine, the resources are more valuable in orbit than on the ground. You know, I subscribe to this Twitter account that you turned me on to called Low Flying Rocks. And it basically mentions every near-Earth object that passes within uh, 0.2 astronomical units of Earth. And it's kind of disturbing because you get this tweet, hey, guess what? An asteroid just missed Earth by a million miles. Yeah. Which isn't all that much. Nope. So we do have a sort of a slingshot effect protecting us, as I understand, But there's also a very good possibility, and we've been thinking about this for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, that we could get nailed by another asteroid at any time. So the reason I brought that up is that if there are people out there who are incentivized to to fly to asteroids for monetary gain, they are also incentivized to – they're the ones that we're going to turn to when there is an asteroid flying too close and say, hey, you guys are the experts at flying to asteroids – Go fly this one and move it a little. Well, an interesting point, right? Talk about the evolution of a sentient species. 
Yeah. Right. That you can get to a point to understand that this planet can be hit in such a way that it will uh, wipe out our civilization and then be able to defend it. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Because uh, obviously the dinosaurs never got there. Nope. They farted their way out of existence. (laughs) You know, that's really true. That was in the news just a couple of weeks ago that dinosaurs may have uh, contributed to their own demise because of their farts. Mm hmm. Yeah. Methane. Carbon dioxide. Nothing like a little gas. Yeah. Uh, They certainly did not uh, develop astronomy, figure out how to track low-Earth asteroids, and then much less say, "Uh uh-oh, here comes one, what do we do about it? They played hooky from dinosaur school. But I think, you you know, your argument is fairly compelling. We need to develop this technology because it's a logical step in the evolution of humanity to be able to protect ourselves from the next big asteroid. Yeah. And uh, if we can make a couple of bucks along the way, why not? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh but i i'm just interested in seeing when the the next entity comes along that will say okay i will now use those raw materials in space to start manufacturing what does a because think about what a factory looks like if you don't have gravity mm-hmm. like now you you want to use that as an asset that if i don't have to deal with gravity how do i manufacture differently you know, there's an awful lot of experimentation going on in the space station of showing how different kinds of alloys and different types of metals can be made when you alloy without gravity. Yeah. So you wonder if, if once we start having more raw resources in space, you can start looking at, does it make sense to manufacture that way? And what does a spacecraft look like? If you can get to the point of actually manufacturing a spacecraft to, uh, to be able to build it in orbit like that. Yep. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh, you know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. You know what we didn't talk about at all? What's that? Mars. <sighs> yeah. Elon Musk wants to go to Mars, doesn't he? In the, you know, that's his long-term strategy. There's been some great interviews with him lately. And he's just sort of said, we need to colonize another planet. Again, he's talking about survival of, of humanity, that there is a distinct advantage to, to being on more than one planet if we can get it to the point of being self-sustaining. But the more you understand about this process, the more you realize that if you don't just want to do boot prints and flags on Mars, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be built. A lot of technology needs to be developed. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because why would we go to Mars? Because it's too inhabitable here. Guess what? It's inhabitable on Mars. Yeah. So if you're going to terraform, isn't it cheaper to terraform the Earth than it is to terraform Mars? I would tend to agree with you, but I think the other reason is that because it's in our best interest to be in more than one place. Yeah. It is another step. I just think it's a step further than we really acknowledge. I think you're right. I think it's going to be a long time. It's it. and But if we're going to make it sensible, we need to 
do what we're doing. They, this this idea with planetary resources of mining asteroids, guys like Bigelow talking about building a, a base on the moon for yeah. reasonable purposes. Yeah. Long-term survival. You know, the current model, if you look at Zubrin, Robert Zubrin's book, uh, The Case for Mars, I think is the best described model of how you go to Mars and function on Mars long-term. It is quite expensive. But it's also, you know, they're not dealing with the, the what's the one thing we've learned? About from the space station. And people argue the space station has minimal value. Like, what's the one thing we've learned? Mm. Humans don't do well in low Earth gravity. Yeah. Right? When you don't have any gravity, you have a problem. You can make it about six months. Well, it's a year each way for Mars. Yep. So, we're talking about a total different spacecraft design if we're going to create one that can actually generate uh, enough gravity just by spinning to, to be able to fly it. We've never done that. That's a totally different kind of spacecraft. Yeah. Uh, much less a spacecraft that will function reliably for years. Yeah, sure is an issue. I, t- I tend to think that um, we have so much more work to do on making Earth more inhabitable that uh, we, should, we shouldn't be ignoring Mars. But I think that, um, you know, let's, we have so much to do here at home. First, yeah. We have many problems to solve. But we and acknowledge the fact that Mars may be a long-term goal. It is a long-term goal. Yeah. But there are near-term goals like asteroid mining. And even, I think, putting science colonies on Mars is a reasonable goal. Mm-hmm. The best concept I've ever seen for what to use the moon for is a big telescope. On the far side of the moon, away from Earth, facing out. That's pretty awesome. So, you know, I could see that as a long-term goal. You talk about uh, the James Webb Telescope, which will ultimately replace the Hubble. Yeah. And it's just a teeny tiny bit over budget, like by $4 billion. Right. Uh, and it's going to Lagrangian Point One. Really interesting telescope. But what's the telescope that replaces that? Mm. And I think it's something on the surface of the moon, on the far side of the moon. Yeah. Uh, which means it needs people to take care of it and uh, to build it. And, you know, that to me seems like a logical, valuable goal, yeah. achievable with technology we've got today. Sure. And lays the groundwork for future trips to Mars. Are there any companies thinking about m- setting up a manufacturing base on the moon just for uh, space-based materials? You know, there's discussions, but I, we're not as far along on that. It, it's still very much... Uh, in the realm of government projects and science projects, it's it's when the billionaires club gets together and starts working on that that I think we'll see that. And it, and it, you, you know you see the progression that'll come when uh, when planetary resources gets yeah. moving. You know, we mentioned we talk about some of the other companies besides SpaceX that are doing things so as not to leave them behind. Uh, what's Armadillo doing these days? So Armadillo, and I, I don't put Armadillo and SpaceX together. You know, there's SpaceX and orbital sciences that are actually building orbit vehicles. Yeah. Virgin Galactic, Armadillo Aerospace, Lynx Aerospace, those guys are all building suborbital vehicles. And, uh, and Armadillo Aerospace has a new vehicle called Stiga that is uh, really in the same class as uh, Spaceship Two, it, it but it's it's a more of a traditional rocket model. Mm-hmm. So they are getting up to uh, the ninety ninety five kilometer high, you know, the sixty mile. That's the edge of space kind of uh, point, right? And uh, you know, so they're they're evolving, but it, they are behind where Spaceship Two is certainly, mm-hmm. uh, and they're you know going after different kinds of projects, but still very much in the suborbital class. 
Okay. What about X-Core? And so X-Core are the, the Lynx guys. Right. And these are the folks that are actually ta- building uh, more of a space plane design similar to uh, Spaceship One and Spaceship Two. Uh, but slightly different design, and they are making progress. Uh, this just this past month in May 2012, they're talking about uh, the the current model, the real uh, Mark One of a rocket powered uh, two seater uh, is under construction. Mm. So they're they're getting closer, right? Actually, getting stuff built that can fly. Uh, more suborbital vehicles, slightly different design, a little more compact. You know, yeah. they're not trying to be as big, but uh, they are you know, back to construction again, which is good. You know, there's a little bit of funding there. Folks are actually spending money to get stuff built. All right. So we'll keep our eyes on all these companies and SpaceX is definitely out front today. But uh, yeah. I, I can I, I can imagine that maybe Virgin Galactic might be the next one to make a move. We'll, we'll have to uh, just keep watching. Well, Orbital Sciences is the big one next because uh, they're actually in competition with SpaceX for delivering stuff to the space station. They'll both get contracts long-term. And their vehicle, the Antares, is actually capable of resupplying the space station as well. So we expect a flight in 2012 from Orbital Sciences. And that really, you know, now you'll have two companies capable of delivering stuff to the space station. Mm. Awesome. Good news. Well, that's a show. I think you're right, and uh, I guess we'll have to stop pushing back the Nuke Show. It's next. Yeah, it's got to be next. But we've All got right. more stuff to do, like autonomous vehicles and high technology that's coming down the pike. Well, don't forget plasma-based aerodynamics. Uh, we have lots to talk about. Stay tuned. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pearlsite.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a